0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. And boy, do we have a packed studio this morning. We've got more health professionals than a beachside European conference. And they're all aching to fill you in on the latest in the world of medicine and health. Now, when I said health professionals, that included Lex Judicata. A lawyer, for sure, but he's spent the last 15 years as the senior counsel to one of Melbourne's largest public hospitals. Lex could have been a doctor, but the sight of blood made him faint. So instead, he disembowels adversaries figuratively, not literally. Lex will be telling us about the rules around Christmas parties, perhaps, and what doctors know and don't know about end-of-life and substitute decision-making, according to a new study. He'll actually be quoting research, which is a novel change for Lex. Our special guest this morning is an OT and clinical neuropsychologist, yep, got that right, who has worked in the area of acquired brain injury for 40 years in clinical practice and authoring several books as well. Her name is is Sue Sloan, and she'll be chatting with us about her experiences working in long-term rehabilitation with people who have suffered a brain injury and how she helps people to deal with cognitive problems. Dr. Nick Carr runs a very busy GP practice, I know because I've been there, in St. Kilda, as well as writing books, and oh, he does so many thousands of things that it would take up the rest of the intro if I was to tell you all of them. The man must not sleep. Nick will be talking with us about some of the perils of this time of year and that is kids swallowing those tiny little batteries from toys and the like and other foreign objects which are potentially fatal plus our favorite nurse epi pen will be joining us she really does have one of the best non diplomas ever and uh, maybe a little bit later on in the show we'll get you we'll get her to explain why all this and so much more in the next hour of radiotherapy i've been talking a long time good morning lex Judicata. oh
2: good morning mel it's great to be here um i thought i would say something about christmas parties because this demographic is at high risk you know they'll listening audience triple r well, well known for misbehaving <laughs> christmas parties
1: well there was a certain colleague of ours that texted me at five o'clock this morning to say i won't be coming into the show today because <laughs> yeah. he was at a
0: christmas party
1: yeah. um good morning sue sloan welcome to the show thank you Mel. nice to have you in dr nick hi
3: mal how are you
1: I'm well, thank you. Well I'm not well. I'll talk to you about this yeah, in a second. That was a loaded question. <laughs> you don't want to ask me how I'm you feeling you always right ask
3: that. a question you know the answer
1: to. Uh, it. yeah, very good lawyer advice, I'd say. Hmm. And um EpiPen, hello.
4: Morning. You've morning. got a
1: nice. What's that? What are you wearing? Lycra? Better help. Yeah, something. A
4: lycra. But also, can you tell the listeners what we've got on today? A little
1: bit of. We have little uh, Santa hats on our head. Yay. They're very large red yummers, is what I said. But uh-uh. no, they're Santa hats. Mm. You look good, Lex. You should keep that on for the rest Thanks of the you.
2: Much. Year. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm amazed it fits because my mother had a terrible time when I was born, and she never <laughs> lets me forget it. It has something to do with your head. Or? The G- yeah. The GP had to go GP it like this, Nick. Gee, we had to go back to his rooms to get the forceps. I was born at St. George's in Kew. Yeah. Uh, There's a plaque on the wall, as you'd expect. Uh, and um, <laughs> he had to go back to Auburn halfway through the labour to get the forceps because the head was so big. And it's because it's full of... Brain. Hmm. Ego. Thank you for saying a- that, And now. ego. <laughs> that
1: large to contain ego. Hey, uh, we have better rock onto some uh, the ketchup. Uh, now, Nick, oh,
3: you had this fascinating thing about pigeons. Well, it's a, it, who, would, who would have thought that you could train a pigeon to detect breast cancer? turns out you can. And uh, whereas it takes 10 years to train a radiologist to do the same thing, <laughs> you can train a pigeon to pick up a breast cancer with 85% accuracy in two weeks. I've got to provide a number, <laughs> You, 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 as, as an ornithologist and bird fancy of many years I'm sure you'd understand this that pigeons are well known uh, for having extraordinary eyesight um, which is why they're sometimes used for this sort of thing uh, and you might think that they don't because you're driving towards a bunch of pigeons and they all sit in the road and look at you and they fly off at the last minute and you think oh, those dumb birds they can't even see what's coming at them uh, but the reason they do that is because they actually process sight at three times the speed that we do so, um, so hang on, this is, you put up an x-ray, or a mammogram. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm getting to yeah. that, I'm getting to that. Because oh, okay. you said eyesight, I'm so I thought you meant smell. It's eyesight. It's eyesight, you don't smell a radiographic plate. <laughs> well, I'm a, sci- I'm a psychiatrist, man. <laughs> <too> <laughs> this is sounding like <laughs> a vet program. <laughs> I smell mine. So, so, I, d- so I'm, I'm doing the intro to Oh, you're building the, the drama. Sorry, yeah. I'm building the, say so, so your pigeon's car flying away too late, you know, that's where we yeah, were. Yeah. Uh, the reason they do that <laughs> is because <laughs> to a pigeon, the car is approaching nice and slowly because they process visual data three times as fast as we do Uh, so they don't have to fly off till the last minute because they can see what's happening so well Uh, if they watched one of our movies which is what around about 25 frames a second it would look like a slow slideshow to them for a pigeon you have to give 75 frames a second to get a movie how about that Get
2: I, away. I, don't think I, I don't think I need to hear any more of this program this morning. I've learned so much already. <laughs> that is hmm? amazing. So
1: hang on. So what happens with pigeons? Mem- so the what
3: hormones? they so what they reckon was pigeons have this uh, phenomenal eyesight capacity. So they've looked at mammographic plates, which is where you have your breast cancer check as a woman, uh, um, age fifty onwards, if you want to know how often <laughs> to do it. Um, and uh, there are changes that you can see which indicate the possibility of breast cancer. And they showed that they could train pigeons to pick up the microcalcification, which is the early change of possible breast cancer to within 85 percent accuracy within just two weeks
4: and, and
3: what does the pigeon uh, do when it sees something well peck at it. it pecks or squirts or fly. i don't know what it does <laughs> it ruffles its feathers so,
4: no, ha- hang on who,
1: who actually even came up with this idea of getting it's pigeons into radiographic
3: area it's I mean, extraordinary isn't it someone with a lot of research money and a bit of extra time
1: you're joking that is phenomenal stuff because we have heard of was it Uh, uh, dogs that can
3: smell uh, smell melanoma smell melanoma
4: and and I've got one um, about the woman that could smell Parkinson's disease Yeah. and she um, could smell it in shirts of men and she had a 100% success rate picked up the sensitivity of all the shirts that she sniffed
1: don't you think that's amazing because now we're entering a different field or we're no longer bounded by traditional modes of of diagnosis, we're now accepting that perhaps this is bona fide like getting pigeons that is
3: wild man and the the dogs and the melanoma came because they um there were case reports of particularly the sort of farmers out in the bush where the the dog wouldn't leave their leg alone and they went to the gps oh mate dog keeps sniffing this mole here and turned out it was a melanoma and dogs of course have this monstrous smell center in their brain um um, and uh, melanomas do release a particular protein, uh, which they
1: can detect. And so, back to the pigeons. So, if pigeons can detect breast cancer, surely they'd be able to, be able to train them to do, you know, other things as well. Picking you, ammonia.
3: Uh, they'll be doing col- <laughs> coronary <laughs>
1: that, is, that is unbelievable. Where was it? Do you, do you have a reference for this study? Because yes.
3: I I don't believe you. yes Yeah, it's in Plus one, which is one of those really reputable journals, it's yep. online and uh, it's published just in this month.
1: So Google Pigeons Mammogram—that is amazing.
4: Um, EpiPen. Did you have some ketchup? You yeah, you just the uh, just uh, um Well, it's a small but a big story. Can I do that? Small but a big story but, um, about the. Um, deaths of some young people at some of the Mm. latest Sydney and Adelaide um, music festivals. So they're called stereosonic festivals and in particular what flagged this one for me was a 25 year old pharmacist. So an educated person who died at um, the Sydney stereosonic festival and at that concert 130 people were treated for overdoses. 69 people were charged with a drug supply or possession of a drug And in particular, there's been David Caldecott, who's been really trying to flag this with the media and fellow medical people that we've got to start thinking about testing drugs at some of the festivals. So um, he's from some of the research that he's read, which I'll talk about in a second, Mm -hmm. is that two-thirds of people, when they've had their drug tested, so they go up to a little stand and they put the tablet into a little machine, and two-thirds of people that have found out that they're... Their drug isn't what they were thinking they were taking yeah. have refused to take it there's still a third that might have been told it's a bit dodgy and they still take it so that's still a sig- significant number but um the so australia- this was
1: overseas obviously because we don't do this in australia
4: that's right yeah. that's overseas research um and the australian drug foundation so the national policy manager mm. jeff munro said it was time that we should be starting to think about pill testing now, the problem, which, wait for these figures, in 2011, there were 1,323 deaths on the road, <coughs> so all causes of deaths on the road, yeah. and then from the deaths from drug overdoses was 1383, so it's 50 more, but it's equivocal to road deaths. And I suppose being a bit of an epi person there might be drug overdoses which are incorporated in that figure could be intentional. Yeah. But it's a significant number and we really should be doing something about it. I think this is just, it's a red rag. It's- We've
1: so overseas, I know in certain countries where is it in 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 um, is it in the Netherlands? Okay, so
4: in, in Holland, in very forward thinking in 1993, the Dutch government issued guidelines on the rave parties yeah. so they believed that they had to consider and turn a blind eye to the drugs that were being taken yeah. because there's tens of thousands of people, this yeah. is, these are Holland figures, yeah. Dutch figures were taking drugs and they're yeah. not going to Stop doing it.
2: So if you turn a blind eye, how does that stop unintentional deaths?
4: So because you're encouraging people to come to these, um, to these little tables in the rave rooms and getting their pills tested.
2: So when you say turn a blind eye, they can turn up and have their pills tested without being charged Correct. by the cops?
4: Correct. And mm. this is what is pivotal around, which you're probably thinking about with your legal hat on, is how to do that blind eye legally so but they have thought we've got to do this because we've got to reduce the deaths so what they have in the in the holland in the dutch um rave parties is they have little stations where you can go and they have um, plenty of water there they have first aid and they have um, pill testing stations which are a pound and wait for this, there are 700 varieties of some of the pills. So we're talking about ecstasy is the main one. And because that's, that's the one that's often
1: cut with other stuff like strychnine yes,
4: and even, terrible things. Yes, even yeah. um, some fertilisers yeah. mixed yeah. in with these drugs. So,
2: so how is the te- testing, done? It's like a spectrometer or something, Is it What uh, it doesn't destroy the pill? Cause
4: I think well, they're, they're, you can
2: take it away and swallow it. Yeah,
4: they're chemists that have set up these little tests and I but think they mix them up and test non, them.
3: Non-destructive testing.
4: You probably, probably
1: shave a bit off and stick it in the mass spectrometer. Yeah.
3: I think what they encourage people to do is to get an extra pill. So if you're buying oh. four pills, buy five and they test one. Oh, I see. And... Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't
4: mm. know that. So Nick can pronounce this drug name. So the most common one is MDMA, which is ecstasy, ecchi, vitamin C, pinga, Adam X, all the yeah, nicknames. Yeah. Um, but it's meth, amphetamine, methyl, Dioxymethylamphetamine. Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: Tony Mockwell could uh, pronounce it for you if you're asking. Yeah.
4: MDMA. MDMA is the key drug in ecstasy, and it's both a stimulant and hallucinogenic. But can I just... I just want to describe what... In this paper I was reading last night, just to give you a picture of what it's like. So in these stereosonic parties, rave Mm. things, you have 10,000 people. They're not sitting down, Mm. and they're all jumping and dancing Mm. to... Mm. Rhythms that are faster than our heart rates even on a very mm. excited day, mm. so they say talk about one hundred and eighty beats per mm. minute, mm. so you're just seriously going nuts mm. and to keep up your energy and to and also all the nice feelings that you mm, can have mm. with ecstasy, apart from all the terrible mm. ones. But it's 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 a new way of entertaining it's, young people at these parties. It's not the it's not the
1: big problem, not so much the ext well obviously ecstasy is a problem, but it's also that it's cut with God Correct. knows what else. So you're not sure what dose you're getting, whether it's one percent or a hundred percent, and you're not sure if it is one percent what the other ninety nine percent is. And if you go up to these testing stations they'll say this is the dose it is, twenty five percent and the seventy five percent is palaver or whatever. Don't now, you know.
4: just to couch that uh, is what of the, one of the main criticisms is that they're not these drug testing stations aren't terribly accurate. Who's so liable? they will they will who's be able reliable? to That's a they'll be able point. to detect some dodgy stuff in it but if you've got 700 types of ecstasy you you, you won't be able to detect every single thing and that's where people are criticizing it and they say that we should be focusing on more education harm reduction yeah
1: has this led to a decrease in deaths at concerts in holland
4: okay so we've had that huge figure in australia of deaths that's terrible so in 2011 remember that was 1383 Wait for this, ladies and gentlemen. um
2: Sorry, it wasn't one three eight three for uh, rave drugs. Was well, it?
4: It's, it's a figure called death by drug overdose. Yeah, it could be heroin. Yeah, yeah, that could be lots of things. Yes, so. yes. But, but still, it's a significant yeah, yeah. anyway. Yeah. So, in the last decade in Holland, they've had six, six deaths really? from drugs in the last decade, including heroin. Well, this is at rave parties. Oh, yeah, okay. This is so related to rave parties. Hmm. So you've got the two figures. One is drug overdose, which could be... It's not broken down. Whereas... But they attribute... So we've had three deaths in Australia in the last four weeks. They've had six deaths... In Holland, attributed to drug rave drugs parties
1: taken at yeah, rave parties. Yeah, yeah. so clearly, <laughs> I mean, I just saw an article in the paper today. There's a was it Richard Branson was on the uh, Australian uh, Ice Task Force panel. Uh, mm-hmm. He was he was arguing for sort of more open. Uh, uh, laws and rules regarding uh, drugs. I think, come on, I mean, this seems to be, the, the current way that we are treating uh, drug policy doesn't seem to be working. This is a tragedy when these young kids die. Yes. Eyes.
4: So I've just, I've just in summary, right. yep. what, what, if we did have these drug testing things at the parties, yeah. Um, what they can do is give the person a bit of information about the type of drug they're taking. They've also, if it's a dodgy drug, they can discard it safely and not put it back into circulation. They can possibly change the black market. So if somebody's told, the you know, like the blue one with yeah, the dollar yeah. sign, this is dodgy, right. they'll go back to their friends and say, dodgy, don't take the blue one with the dollar sign on it. I oh, always so, take the blue one. So... <laughs> That's Especially the dollar's so it can change behaviour it can change the black market also the pill testing place is um, a time where you can give information and support people there's long term data that could be collected on the type of drugs
1: and you love the data isn't it? I love
4: Technology. the data and also it could be saving deaths and overdoses yep. and education interesting please stuff. think about it you are listening to a podcast from Community
1: Radio
0: 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia
1: Sue Sloan, thank you so much for coming in and wearing that little Santa cap that our audience can't see.
0: It's a pleasure, Mel.
1: How did How did uh, epi Pen get you to come in to, to speak to us? Because I know you're a little bit nervous. We'll make you feel comfortable.
0: Well, she just kept asking.
1: <laughs> she does. <laughs> she's that, very she? persistent. Yeah, yeah, she's very persistent. Now, tell us.
0: Tell us your title and what you actually do, because you do have a a rather fascinating job. Well, I have a dual qualifications in occupational therapy and clinical neuropsychology, Mm. and my area of uh, interest is brain injury. Uh, I've worked, as you've mentioned, in brain injury for all my career, 40 years. Uh, I currently work in private practice and uh, mainly working with people who have... uh, returned home following their injury uh, to live uh, with family or uh, whatever, some sort of community setting people with severe brain injury who will be living with the consequences Mm. of that injury for the rest of their life Mm. and my role along with other members of a team who will generally be also supporting the individual, is to understand the impact of that brain injury, to uh, support uh, 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 carers to be able to understand how to assist people in everyday life and also to help people to rebuild Mm. their independence uh, and meaningful Mm. life role participation. often these injuries are uh, so severe that people can no longer return to work mm. or study or many of the other more complex roles that we undertake. So it's also about finding, you know, another pathway uh, in life um, following this kind of life-changing event. Can, can
4: you give us a sort of a picture of a typical... Not that typical, but a, a patient that might have had a bad brain injury and what they would be facing?
0: Well, one of the first um, people uh, that I worked with uh, when I started in private practice, and this is about 20 years ago, had had a severe traumatic brain injury uh, when he was hit by a car. And he, when I met him, was in a locked or secure neuropsychiatric ward. Uh, So his injury was so severe that his behaviour change was so marked that he couldn't be managed anywhere else other than a secure setting. So what was he doing that made him be locked up there? His behaviour... He was amnesic, so he was not able to remember anything from minute to minute. So he was quite disoriented. He didn't know where he was or the fact that he'd had an injury. And he would keep trying to leave, or we call it absconding, um, when people try to leave a safe place. He was also uh, very aggressive, both uh, verbally and physically, such that it was extremely difficult to manage him so will that improve
2: with time or is that it for him for the rest of his
0: life it does improve and uh i still have um i've actually restarted contact with him um a couple of weeks ago so 20 years later um he is now living in the community uh he's undertaking he's quite independent in many activities of everyday living he has a program of activities um, out in the community things that he enjoys doing relationships um and when his dad rang me the other day and my first question was you know how is he doing his dad said terrific which was wonderful to hear Mm. so so is that partly your treatment
2: and the medical team that looked after him in rehabilitation is it also the brain that recovers or reprograms itself
0: it's a combination of all those things the the brain that you bring into the brain injury is a big factor so what what you're capable of doing and what you did do before the injury is a big factor Mm -hmm. then it's about the treatment that you get uh and then it's about the um social supports that you receive um and the rehabilitation that you receive long term once you return to the community so when you say treatments can you just give us an idea
1: of what sort of treatments you do with somebody that's got cognitive impairments
0: well as a neuropsychologist um, it's about understanding the way the um, person's um, cognitive functions have changed so the nature of the memory problem for instance or an understanding of the behaviour change, so an an understanding of the things that trigger verbal and, say, physical aggression. And then it's about modifying um, the way uh, people go about supporting the person, modifying the activities and the routines that you ask Mm -hmm. people to engage in, and slowly rebuilding people's skills, their confidence. uh, Could you give us an example
1: of that? I mean, I kind of get what you're saying in general. I'm just trying to think of... I mean, you know what you remind me of is that I went to an... OT session once for psych rehab. And uh, there was this fantastic OT, and she said, Do you know how many individual tasks there are in folding washing? I thought, No, there's something like 27 and you know she broke down every single and i thought you know and she was teaching people to do this and i thought gee you know i didn't realize that there were these all those steps can you can you take us through maybe some of those
0: well you're right everyday activities we take so many things for granted because we just do them naturally as part of our routines and those skills are well learned but when you have a brain injury and some of those cognitive skills you need to do those tasks are are missing Mm. then then um, you have trouble. So this young man that I mentioned who was in the neuropsychiatric ward would, for instance, um, refuse to have a shower Mm. and he would hit people who tried to get him to have a shower, Mm. Um, particularly the nurses. So the nurses didn't want to shower him. His father would come in every day and shower him and his father had quite a different approach. Um, he, the way he slowed the task down enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave him opportunities to do as much of the showering as he could. So rather than rush him, rush through it to get, get it over mm-hmm. with quickly, which tended to trigger the aggression, he did the opposite. He slowed it down. He talked him through it. He told him jokes um, because he had a really lovely sense of humour. Um, and when he was laughing... He kind of wasn't thinking mm-hmm. about hitting people. Mm. Um, and he um, he slowly got him used to the fact that every day there would be a shower and this is how it was undertaken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the verbal aggression and the physical aggression slowly subsided and then this client started to accept other people showering him as well. Um, I think um,
4: you've got a lovely story about somebody applying for a job. Would you like to...?
0: Well, this is the same fellow oh, actually. <laughs> um, uh, he um, he progressed uh, out of the um, locked ward uh, into a house into the community, and we were um, interviewing carers who would. Come and support him um, during his daily activities. And we found that it worked really well when he selected his own staff, so rather imposed staff on him if he played a role in it. So... One of the things, just as background, one of the things that often changes is that people become much more impulsive. They lose their social filter Mm. in their um, interactions with Mm. people and tend to say the things that sometimes the rest of us are thinking um, that we don't say because we know that it's socially inappropriate. Like you're wearing a silly hat at the moment, (laughs) (laughs) too. That would be an example, Mm. yes. Mm Um, so we knew that this carer was um, very, very overweight, and that that the client was likely to say something no. the, the first thing he 'd say was you 're fat mm-hmm. we could predict that, so we set him up to try and encourage him to not say mm-hmm. that, to conduct the interview as an employer would. Mm-hmm. And we could see him through the whole thing. This was a few years along now, so he was sort of aware that he did tend to say this sort of thing. And he was worked really hard to not say you're fat through mm-hmm. the interview. Anyway, the interview was over and we were saying goodbye and he said, um, goodbye, David, and I didn't say you were fat <laughs> once. <laughs>
2: Great insight. So, can you tell me um, what is actually an acquired brain injury? For example, would stroke result in a patient that of you're of your describing coming to your purview through stroke as opposed to trauma
0: um both are examples of an acquired brain injury so the the word acquired means that the brain injuries occurred after a period of normal development right so could, through any means by any means at all it, pretty much yes what do you think uh
1: the future will hold for uh ABI and treatment like in the next what do you reckon in 2025 where will we be Oh, that's a good question. Ooh,
0: yeah. I'm not sure. Um, it'll depend a lot on where people direct the funding.
1: Let's um, just say you got $2 billion.
0: <laughs> well, um, I think that a lot of the medical research, things like brain transplants, that sort uh-huh. of thing, I mean, if there can be medical interventions done at the time of the injury that reduce the extent of the injury, that... I'm sure there'll be massive um, progress in that regard
1: mean, as in stem cell transplants for neurons possibly yeah.
0: um, and what's it like for relatives living with
4: people that have got a quite bad injury so for example, you said this father was so patient I mean that must take a huge toll on some family settings be fine
0: if you've got the time but what about what's happening in families with these people with these injuries? Well, oh it's a massive trauma for family and really the whole social network we kind of refer to it as a ripple effect so the brain injuries happen to that individual but it ripples out across the whole network particularly for families um, parents of children who have brain injuries spouses uh, the, the impact is massive and the adjustment is extremely lengthy period of time I think one of the most difficult things for families is that the loss is quite ambiguous so um, family members will often say, you know, the person looks the same. In some respects, they are the same, but they're not the same. They're different, um, particularly when there's been the impact on personality and behaviour change. Mm.
4: Do, do doctors ever say, oh, there's a time period where your brain injury might correct itself or you'll get back to normal, or...?
0: Yes, unfortunately, doctors do tend to um, either um, uh, overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. It can be a bit hard to get the right um, balance. So sometimes doctors will say, look, you'll be fine in a few months when clearly the person won't be. Um, Or they can say, you know, things like recovery stops after 12 months or two years. So they'll put a time limit on it, which, again, is not true. And, you know, the effect of that is... Terrible um, for families, and I had one family that I had where I went to the house, and um, the um, he was about. Um, oh Just off, just about 23 months Mm post-injury. And the wife showed me on her calendar, she'd marked the date, Mm -hmm. two years Mm -hmm. post-injury, and she said, that's the date Mm -hmm. I leave him if he's not back to normal. Mm -hmm. And he only had a month to go. And Mm -hmm. really, that was never going to happen. It was really unrealistic. And she did. She left because she... Felt mm-hmm. she couldn't manage this. Um...
1: So th- this speaks to to I reckon some of the stuff that doctors do. We we try to give people certainty because certainty contains anxiety and it's something that people can sort of understand. You know, it's six months or twelve. It's like I mean, everybody likes certainty. You know, me included. Um, but. Most of the time, we really don't know with uh, you know one hundred percent precision that it is going to be six months or twelve months, or you know just even on a population level, let alone an individual level. And I wonder if there is some language we should get noam chomsky on the phone on the on the phone to just talk about this. You know, could we say, look, we think it's going to be about twenty four months, but, there's a degree of uncertainty around that it could be x or it could be y
3: there's a real difficulty with even that we think it would be 24 months because yeah. people hear 24 Four months, months, months and yeah, yeah. don't hear any of the yeah, qualifications yeah, yeah. when i was a medical student i remember the training given to me by a, a palliative care specialist yeah. um and he said the question everybody says is how long's he got doc um and He said, you know, if we say, oh, it could be three months, it could be 12 months, they only hear three Three or 12. They don't hear the uncertainty. So it's a very difficult area. So, Sue, I'm going to turn to to you because (laughs) you must deal with this on a regular basis. How do you deal with this this timeline question that everybody reasonably asks? I
0: I refuse to answer it um, in terms of giving any sort of definite prediction. What I do say is that... um, you know recovery can go on for the rest of a person's yep. life people can continue to improve right, right. Yeah. there's no time limit yeah. and i think the biggest um thing is to try and um instill a sense of hope yep. in people that they can continue to improve over the rest of their life but can i improve
2: by take doing active steps or do they is it passive just being alive means you'll improve is that are there things you can do to accelerate the improving
0: most definitely. Um, a lot of the improvements are based on neuroplasticity and there's a lot we know about neuroplasticity, um, about how to promote neuroplasticity. Um, the biggest evidence is around physical exercise. Oh, um, I love
1: hearing that. <laughs> don't we all?
0: Um, What's wrong with the it's, Sudoku again? <laughs> no. And That's his
2: version of physical exercise, because <laughs> his hand moves. <laughs> Eye- eyeballs. I <laughs>
0: But that placing a demand on the brain that to learn fantastic. something new is critical.
1: That is fantastic stuff. Like, I've heard dancing is uh, supposed to be good because you're, you're not only doing physical activity, but you're also learning a pattern.
0: Which, Absolutely. Yeah. That's a fantastic activity. But one of the critical things is that you need to find an activity that matters to that person, <sighs> that the person enjoys and wants to do because motivation and engagement in it and interest in it is again another critical factor see,
1: psychiatrists love hearing that it's all about the meaning sue um you know i can see every person on the panel is is kind of aching to ask you more questions um but other if we do that we'll let into lex judicata's time and i don't want to be at the end of his well, show I mean, now
2: need an hour Mel. <laughs> <laughs>
1: into the next show. Um, Thank you so much for coming in. So stay with us um, because I'm sure you'll be able to contribute to the rest of the conversation if you can get a word in edgewise. It's been fantastic. Three. Triple. ah. Dr. Nick, one of the sort of most important parts of this show for me is i get to get uh, a range of specialists <laughs> diagnosing my problems um for free tell me why why when i've got a cold like i have now sometimes i feel cold and sometimes i'm really really hot and it's hard to get my regulation my thermoregulation like i put on a jumper and then i'm really really hot and i take it off and i'm really really cold
3: yeah those mean wicked germs that are in your system viruses with oh. the coughs and colds uh they dysregulate your thermoregulation and Do they? yeah and <laughs> if you if you actually pop the little beeper in your ear took your temperature, you'd probably find you are running a bit of a fever when you're feeling like that, which is why you have that hot and cold kind of feeling. One minute yeah. I want to put three jumpers yeah, on, yeah, next yeah, minute yeah. I'm sweating and I want to go around in a T-shirt. Because
2: we just wor- uh, warn Einstein and Gaga not to use your microphone? Or <laughs> yeah,
3: we'll
1: get some Glen 20 or do something yeah. like that. Okay, that makes me feel, at least I've got some knowledge. That gives me structure so I can feel a little bit better in my suffering.
2: Hey, uh, Lex. You, you put could- your clothes back on now? <laughs>
1: Oh, there are so many ways I can that Why haven't we got convention? a camera in the studio? <laughs> we
2: could see you sitting there. We should. Mm. Hey, um, this is
1: the first time you've actually brought in some medical evidence. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Normally it's policy documents thank from you. governments. This very is, this much. This is actually well, from the MJA.
2: legislative changes interesting but this is a survey by a lawyer oh, uh which was published in the meds and a number of doctors oh, good. uh from queensland it's one of the he's a, a sickeningly overqualified lawyer you know road scholar all this sort of stuff You're now joking now running the ga- uh, guardianship unit up in queensland wow. And anyway there's a number of them do this research and they were concerned about Confusion in the law yeah. uh, around end of life decision making, and in particular, uh, substitute decision making. So it's all about yep. health and the law relating to health. So yep. they so they surveyed three thousand doctors and gave them seven questions to answer,
4: right. and
2: um, the questions were all around end of life care. Yep. And of the the mean score was three point two six out of seven.
1: Now, hang on. Before you get to that, let me just ask you another question. So they surveyed... Did they give out
2: 3,000 surveys? Or yeah, correct. 3,000 uh, doctors responded. 3,000 responded? Mm, 3,000 responded, yep. Very, very low in some groups and higher in other groups. And, that um, is an amazing response rate. Uh, yeah, but the scores is, is amazingly bad. That's well, that's significance of the study. Both are impressive. Yeah. Uh, uh, for example, um, at, like, I'll, I'll give you some questions in a minute just so listeners might have a go at this because I know we have a high... Number of people with a medical interest listening, but and and you might find these. You won't win the Nobel Prize if you get these questions <laughs> right. Let me tell you, nor even a scholarship to um, tr- Triple R. Um, but for, for example, um, uh, in uh, the, the highest scoring state was New South Wales, three point six five. They managed, but poor old Queensland, two point seven nine out of seven. Was the average result in queensland of doctors knowing about end-of-life decision uh, okay. yeah answering these seven uh-huh. questions correctly out of seven two out of seven um the best performing specialty what do you reckon it was psychiatry <laughs> GP. no they went to they found a few psychiatrists in bars they said i don't know why that really, no <laughs> that wasn't true uh, geriatric medicine of course was uh, best scoring they but they only scored 3.77 that's a bit not of a worry you going to give yeah. us
3: some of these questions because yes, palliative,
2: palliative care 3.6 what was the worst medical discipline I have uh, a guess. Pediatrics. <laughs> <laughs> no, res- <laughs> pediatrics, i the end of life care. Respiratory was the worst. Which is I just a bit got of a worry. text from a respiratory physician. He's going to be hopping mad to hear that. Here he is. And uh, medical oncology was the second worst. Medical oncology? Yeah, medical oncology. Women or men? Who's better? Women are better. Way sure. better. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure, Yeah, way better. How, How three, much better? 3.9 uh, to 3.26, not that much, I suppose. 3.26 out of 7. 7. Give us Average the questions. He's building the drama here. <laughs> country, country of birth? Australian-born or overseas-born? Overseas overseas-born. Do better? Yeah. No. Australian-born? Australian-born, do yeah. better, yeah. Okay, you want to hear the questions? Yep. now? the questions? Uh, yep, Could please. you please, we asked them to phone in the answers and we'll give them no, no, Mars no, bar? No, no, no. No. Don't phone in the answers. <laughs> we don't have anybody to answer the phones. i right, just to give you a bit of background. If you sign a refusal treatment certificate in Victoria, that's meant to be binding on the doctors who treat you. If you haven't signed one and your relatives are giving consent, they can't refuse consent unless they're holding a medical power of attorney. That's the basis of the law in Victoria. uh, They can't refuse treatment on your behalf, if you're unconscious, unless they're holding a medical power of attorney. So So a mere relative who's at the bedside can consent to treatment but can't refuse it unless they're holding a medical power of attorney. So that's the guts of the law. There's no law on advance care directives at all, although the the Victorian government's in the middle of legislating on that. That was an election promise and that will be in the parliament early next year um, because i've been involved in consultation on it so um, but that is happening that is advanced care directives where you say if i get sick i don't want heroics or i do want heroics okay here's uh here's one of the questions in a non-urgent situation if the family or friends of an adult who lacks capacity cannot be located Mm -hmm. and there is no refusal of treatment certificate Mm -hmm. you can the answer is true you gotta say true or false Mm -hmm. you can give artificial nutrition and hydration to the adult without obtaining consent or notifying any persons or organizations if you believe that treatment is in his or her best interests so it's a non-urgent situation and the person (laughs) lacks capacity and you can't find anyone to give consent you as a doctor is it true or false that you can yeah. give uh, uh, nutrition uh, without, uh, if you believe it's in the person's best yeah. interest? True. Uh. True. 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 The answer's false. Mm. God, you people. What is wrong Would, with the medical profession?
3: Wouldn't they have to take, uh, take a guardianship application in order to do it? Correct. You'd need oh, to go and get someone to make it's a decision. All, no, yeah, it's you a can't non- find
2: anyone to make a decision. You can't do it. A
3: non-urgent situation. Non-urgent. You need someone else non-urgent. to provide consent on oh, the, did the say patient's not, Did you say non-urgent? I said
2: non-urgent twice. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You've got to listen to the oh, lawyer. I've got a cold. God, when you're trying to get instructions. Right, second question. This is a shorter one, right? Okay. Any, quote, unquote, person responsible, which is the sort of relative when you're unconscious. Okay. Newest relative. Yeah. Any person responsible has legal authority to refuse life-sustaining treatment for an adult who lacks capacity. True or false? No. Any person responsible, that is the, the closest relative usually, has legal authority to no, refuse treatment. That's false. It's, it's, it's what just told us before. Correct, but it's yeah, false. So, yeah. good, we've got one out of two. We're doing well. above <laughs> oh, the, other B3. I'm the national average. I'm above the national average. For decisions about whether to withdraw or withhold life-sustaining treatment, a substitute decision-maker does not have legal authority to overrule a valid refusal of treatment certificate completed when the adult had capacity. So can the nearest relative override a refusal of treatment certificate when the patient's unconscious?
1: Hang on, we've talked about this on the show. <laughs> yeah. So
2: I, 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 I signed a refusal. I don't, want, let's yeah, say, no, I don't no. want antibiotics. I go into a coma and my family arrive, my n- nearest relative who can give consent, i going to you oh, so don't worry, well, i giving the antibiotics.
1: It would make sense yeah. that what you have signed would be the law, that you say, I don't want treatment, that that is... Is that everyone's no, view? No, 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 it's not like Family you. can
0: overrule no. it. If you've lost capacity, mm. um, then it does go to the uh, substitute decision-maker to make the decision Well whole whole Well, the whole, point, behalf, the
2: whole point of a refusal of treatment certificate, if you've got capacity, you don't need one because you can refuse. Because you've ref- yeah. But so you the see- whole point of a refusal of treatment certificate is you can, it operates after you lose capacity. That's yeah. why you make it. Right. So it's like an advanced directive, isn't it? Yeah, it is a form of advanced directive, yeah. that's correct. But Under the Medical Treatment Act, it's called refusal of treatment. Yeah. Yeah, so the answer is... The refusal of treatment certificate takes priority. <gasps> get so I was going down nice. that path. Okay. So oh, go? I didn't actually say yes, yeah, I was I don't going down you. Yeah, I think you pressed path. your bell, though. Right. Here's, here's, here's another I'm one. Febrile. The law requires you to follow a valid refusal of treatment certificate that refuses life-sustaining treatment where it's completed by an adult when he or she had capacity, even if providing the treatment is clinically indicated. Well, yeah. Call, call the law you requires you to follow a valid refusal of treatment certificate that refuses life-sustaining treatment completed by the adult when they had capacity, even if providing the treatment is clinically indicated. What's clinically indicated well, mean? Well, uh, antibiotics for pneumonia. And I'm
1: 35 and otherwise good health. And yeah, I yeah, you're don't in give a
2: coma it. and you've got and you've got pneumonia, and you've got a refusal treatment certificate for antibiotics. Yeah. Does the law say you're required to follow it, given that the antibiotics are indicated? Yes. Of course it does. That's why you
1: signed it. I, I, I know. I'm just thinking it through.
3: Hmm. It, it doesn't look good on radio signals. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. rather internal Another, One more short one. A refusal of treatment certificate...
2: Comes I, bit, but look, well,
1: speak
2: to these. those guys. Seven. <laughs> a refusal of treatment... Yeah, we, we haven't got the psychiatrist score, so don't worry. A, a refusal of treatment certificate completed by an adult when he or she had capacity can refuse life-sustaining treatment for a future medical condition.
1: Well, clearly, from what you said before, the answer is correct. Wrong. Correct. That is
2: false. But hang on, oh, it is I false. Give up. So. Can you read it again? Yep. A refusal treatment just certificate just completed by an adult when he or she had Has capacity been, yeah. can refuse life sustaining treatment for a future medical condition. Future oh, future medical, medical, medical so, condition. Uh, no.
1: so, so I don't have it now, but I'll get it in the future. Ah, oh, so if yeah. I do get.
3: You
2: can't refuse for a future condition. You so can only refuse in Victoria oh, yeah. for a current condition. condition. Yes. Oh, yes. It's pathetic. Oh. It's,
3: it's, it's, it's a very infectious. odd situation, isn't it? Because I'm a healthy person, I say, I don't want life-sustaining treatment mm. in the event of something nasty happening to mm. me. But because that's a future event which hasn't yet happened, doesn't apply. So...
2: Let's t- take... I don't want to um, divert for the last question, but um, let's just take... This is the seventh question... Uh, sorry, the eighth question that wasn't asked related to this point. Someone has HIV-AIDS um, and they refuse um, a medical treatment for uh, pneumonia. Um, which they don't have currently? No, correct. Which, so is, the got future, HIV which, AIDS. which is a future condition. Yeah, they've got HIV-AIDS... <laughs> And eventually of course the HIV AIDS causes them to get pneumonia, mm-hmm. it's, it's, your immune system goes down and you're lying there and the refusal of treatment is there and the family come in, what does the doctor do? Does he give, he or she give treatment for the pneumonia or does the doctor follow the advanced care directive made before the person had pneumonia?
3: My answer is that the um, advanced care directive is about immune deficiency and HIV AIDS and the pneumonia is just a result of that, so my advanced care directive applies. Dr. Carr is completely correct, of it course. It's like seven out of seven. But the I,
2: answer did seven. Is un- I didn't
3: say anything for five.
2: The answer is that the law is very unclear in Victoria on that because you'd have to uh, you'd take Nick's argument that it was a necessary... Because con- you can't die of HIV AIDS, you die of something the sequela, triggered yeah. by HIV all right, the last one. It's quite short. A refusal of treatment certificate contemplated by an adult when... Sorry, completed by an adult when he or she had capacity must be filled out in the approved government form Oh, yes, true, true. Absolutely true. <laughs> true, true, true. How <laughs> can you guys get that one right? That's... <laughs> oh, you love forms baby. Flames. government. You love that stuff. Flames. That is true. <laughs> that is true, yeah. So uh, it's not hard to get 3.26. I've just given you six oh, questions. Yeah. And, you know, that's not too hard. But that's easy. Average score, 3.26. That's a worry. And the answer is not to well, blame the doctors. You blame the law. The law's unclear. And the law's got to be fixed. That's my go-to. And the us. law in Victoria is in the middle of being fixed. Um, we look like we won't have a Medical Treatment Act this time next year. We'll have a Medical Planning Act. And that will make it a lot clearer for the medical profession, what about lay people who have to try and work out So yeah, We can't figure it out. And you expect so, but,
4: oh, I've got a question. Um, when you read legal documents, they, they are always so verbose. Why can't we have examples to make it clearer? Like, uh, you've just given them then.
2: Yeah, examples have... Uh, I, don't I know wanna,
4: they're limited. Yeah, yeah.
2: If the, the law's got to be unambiguous. and examples. the trouble with the Mental Health Act is it's full of discursive material that you begin to wonder, well, is this the law or not? And what if it's not quite my case isn't quite right you know, it's a danger, planning this drafting in legislation can be quite dangerous Un- unambiguous drafting is what you go for not mm. discursive drafting mm. my, that's my view, but it's been a fashion to have and a I wish discursive. I knew what
1: discursive meant well, but anyway you know, we'll discuss like that I'm
2: having a conversation with someone but it's actually an act of parliament
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you um, Lex for embarrassing me on this radio show on <laughs> it's uh, fantastic stuff coming up, Dr Nick will be telling us about uh, the things to watch out for come Christmas Day
3: 3 triple R I'm very interested in uh, the things that people, and particularly children, eat that they shouldn't. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I actually got interested in this partly because fr- the very first paper I published in the medical journal was when I was a baby GP and someone had come in with a very severe pain in their backside, and it turned out that a chicken bone had become lodged in this poor gentleman's anus. What, from going the whole way down his tongue? Went me. all the way through multiple meters of intestine, turned around sideways in the last <laughs> centimeter and impacted <laughs> itself in the anal canal. Uh, oh. My job as a baby GP was to remove whatever this thing was. I've still got it. i still got it. Because yes, I have it photographed with the article. That's because a consultant head head of the hills and told you to do it. <laughs> and, right. So here was this poor person with pain in his anus and uh, caused by chicken bone. So I published this paper uh, imaginatively titled Acute Anal Pain and a Chicken Bone. Um, <laughs> but it led me to do a lot of reading about stuff that goes in the top end and does or doesn't come out the, the bottom end. end. Uh, one thing that's fascinating is actually most of the things you swallow go through perfectly safely and without mm. causing harm mm. but a new <laughs> when i published that paper they didn't exist we now have these button batteries so-called these little mm. batteries mm. that power a lot of kids toys mm. um your remote controls that sort of stuff that uh, all have these small batteries in them but and for small children they're irresistible they they're small they're round they're, they look like lollies they look like lollies they're easy to pop in the mouth they're easy to swallow um but Once you swallow them, the contact uh, with fluid inside the oesophagus or the stomach uh, creates an electrical charge, which then can cause damage to the uh, intestine so, so they're not safe things to have it inside you
1: so the battery itself gives electric shocks on the way down or, it's it so, leaks if it, or? It,
3: so if it keeps moving through that's not a great problem if it gets stuck in one place ah. it can produce an electrical charge which damages the delicate epithelium the lining oh, of whichever yeah. bit it's in and there have been a couple of deaths here in Australia yes. there was a little 12 month old girl died in Victoria this year um, when one of these things got stuck inside her, and a 4 year old had a one of the larger button batteries stuck in her esophagus no one realized and it killed her as well oh. it was a couple of years ago um, so uh, adults need to be aware that these things are uh, at high risk and not yeah. leave them lying yeah, around for yeah. small children uh, and if they are swallowed uh, it's not a question of saying oh it'll probably just come out the other end it's small and it's smooth and it's safe uh, they need to be checked you don't have to rush around panicking um, we don't uh, rush in and rip these things out we watch and see where they're going make sure they're moving through but yeah. for instance if a large one sticks in the esophagus the gullet the top half that can be fished out fairly easy with an endoscope and if it stays there and doesn't move it's going to be dangerous yeah.
2: mm-hmm. so so there used to be uh, biro tops didn't it with till they put holes in the end yeah, small children would suck in a a pen top shaped like a cone and it mm. would block off the airway that mm. was another danger, wasn't it? And then they, yeah. there's now t- holes drilled in the end of pen tops. Oh, is that why? Mm. Oh, so you can't suck it. So you, no, uh, you can still get air vacuum. through them. Oh. So another. So th- should you rush off to the children's hospital if you think your child's? swallow one of these batteries?
3: So if if you think your child swallowed a battery, you don't have to rush off to the hospital, but you do need to get someone to have a look, because they probably need an X-ray yeah. to see, yeah. A, is it there, and B, where is it? And then yeah. you don't, as I say, you don't have to hurtle around doing things immediately, but you then want to follow up with another X-ray. Depends where it is. If it's a large object, uh, and they have various criteria, but the very large batteries which are over about two centimetres in diameter, uh, they usually need to be taken out, because they can get stuck. What, surgically? Or yeah, endo- with an endoscope. So So should you
2: check all your toys and make sure that the battery can't be accessed by a child
3: easily? I'm not sure I know too much about exactly how you're going to do it. You just need to be aware that it's a risk. Um, Mm. The other one that you need to be aware of is um, there are a lot of these toys now which have these very strong magnetic balls, uh, sort of Lego-like construction toys, which have strong magnets um, to hold them together. In fact, there's there's been a craze, I gather, to have artificial piercings of the tongue and the lips and that sort of thing using magnetic balls, which hold together across your tongue or across your lip, so you don't actually have to have the piercing. Oh, so you, you just put them there? Yeah, you, d- you just put them on either side, and it looks like you have a piercing. Oh,
1: yeah, but it's going to come... Yeah. And
3: then you can pop them in and take them out, but there again, there have been deaths from this. did your
2: affairs allow that?
3: Because oh, <laughs> if you it. swallow those balls uh, and they get into the intestine, they can cause a magnetic attraction between two different parts of the intestine. It's uh, Sticking, it's sticking two bits oh, of the, and then causing erosion, uh, and uh, this can happen with kids who swallow these uh, yeah. little magnetic balls as well. But but that's another the,
2: the government can ban dangerous toys and does ban them. Um, every uh, consumer affairs will ban because of the size of the parts. Why wouldn't that be banned for?
1: I think this was this was adults that put them on their toddlers.
3: So their the d- so the adults are the ones who use yeah, yeah, so these sort of it. fake jewellery. And there's a whole if you go on eBay, you can see there's a whole raft of these magnetic jewellery fake piercings thing. available. It as,
1: a, as an earring, like you can on two sides. Wow. Yeah. So these are the sort of things that we need to be looking out for. I mean, anything that a kid can swallow that's small enough for a toddler to swallow, you've got to watch out for. But especially, I mean pretty much anything. But these battery things, you're right, they look smooth and you think, oh, they'll pass it. Like, a, it's
3: called a bezoa, isn't it, when you get when you eat something and it goes the whole way through unchanged. Oh, the definition of bezoa, I think, is of a larger mass than the is creation it? of multiple things, I think, but oh. we don't get too <laughs> so, hung up on the semantics. So he used the
1: word discursive, and he's always on me about my Latin. Bezoa,
2: Lex. That sounds uh, Latin that, to me. Okay, I'll just have to that mm.
3: I, Epi, uh, uh, no,
4: Just going back to your first story about the chicken bone. Yeah. So... Does everybody know what to have in their first aid kit? Know what? Coca-Cola. So Coca Cola can dissolve and push down chicken bones. Really? So yeah, and foreign bodies. I've seen. Yeah. A, a we've, f- got, yeah. we've
1: got our GP looking askance yep. at that. Okay, I but it's one of the things. Like one of
4: the things that you can do. But I think if you're still choking and not <laughs> well, <laughs> I think if you're choking, you're not going to have oh, a drink of oh,
3: carbonic <laughs> acid to get rid of them
4: too. <laughs> oh, okay, Nick, what's your comment?
3: <laughs> well, the interesting thing we don't actually mostly in Western culture swallow chicken bones. Uh, oh. It's in the Asian culture oh, where the. And curries and so yeah. because the uh, cooking technology which cooking methods in Asian culture is to use the big meat cleaver yes, yes, and yes. smash up the chicken and, and, the, and yeah. the ribs and so on go into the foods so we tend to take the, the meat off the ribs but in Asian cooking the ribs commonly go into the cooking and so impacted chicken bones it's well reported in the Asian medical literature
1: Can I tell you a a personal story? When I was about, I must have been about five years old, when I put a foreign object into my mouth, my My mum and my sister used to hide these little things all the time and they were these little things wrapped in plastic and they were white and I thought they must be lollies. That's why they're hiding them from me. Mm -hmm. And one day I snuck into, I think it was my sister's bedroom, and I found one of these things wrapped in plastic. (laughs) And I popped it into my mouth and went, poof! it was a, a tampon. Mm. And I, 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 thought, I thought, and I think, why would they hide these from me? What are these stupid things? They don't taste like lollies. And that's when I realised you don't put things in your mouth when you don't know what they are. Mm. As a five-year-old, mm. how about that? So you're looking at me like I'm a complete idiot.
2: No, uh, and I think grandparents have got to try and get back up to speed too because yeah. if you have grandkids around Christmas and you haven't had small children in the house for a long time, ah, good it's part. a really good, uh, good thing to remember. I mean, I've never... Uh, You know, the the battery issue you read about in the paper, but, you know, just to think about that is is really quite serious. And a lot of grandparents' homes aren't kid-proof. They don't have the PowerPoint plugs, for example, to stop them putting their finger... or they're putting metal objects in. Um, You know, you shouldn't have an electric hairdryer next to the bath if a little kid's going to get in the bath. That's right. You forget,
1: as a grandparent, not speaking as a grandparent, but Mm. you forget all those sort of simple things. Very quickly, Tim, we've got about uh, two minutes. Where are you spending Christmas... Epi be Ben
4: oh, oh, I'm going to be spending it with Dr Nick Oh really? Yeah, she just, sounds really sad yeah. but <laughs> So 26 of us at our place Big family wow. Mothers 89 Last might be the oh. last Christmas, all coming. I did
3: tell you, I've got fantastic. a few mates coming from the UK, <laughs> <laughs> didn't I? <laughs>
4: How about you, Sue Sloan?
3: Where will you be spending Christmas?
0: Our home as well, with about 25 family members. All stay the night. It's great fun. Ranging from nearly 90 to down to about one year old. It's <gasps> that's brilliant.
2: Awesome. Well, Lex, do you uh, go? When my mum was 89, we thought it was the last Christmas. She's now 97 <laughs> and is coming again. <laughs> uh, with all my, with, uh, my daughters, two of whom live overseas and are coming home on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. That'll be exciting. At your place? At my place. Uh,
4: and I've just got one joke. Yeah. Um, what do you call a person that um, doesn't like Christmas Was a bit f- afraid of it? I don't know. Claustrophobic.
1: Ah, claustrophobic. Oh, lovely stuff. Well, I'll be in uh, Hanoi celebrating uh, Christmas with um, my family. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with... Uh, you four people this morning and uh, to our entire audience for the uh, for the year. It's been a, a wonderful year on radiotherapy, lots of changes, lots of great stuff happening on the show, and next year we'll be back with a vengeance, uh, with a revamped uh, series of shows and a new team. Have a great Christmas, have a safe new year, and we're going to leave you with the wonderful scientists from Einstein Agogo
0: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne.